With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project, a member of the club's board of governors and your host for today. And today, I should mention, is September 18th, 2020, six months after Bay Area health officials announced the nation's first shelter-in-place order, and six months to the day after I hosted the club's first program on COVID-19. Wow. On that day, we had 7,500 COVID cases in America and 100 deaths. We now have 6.6 million cases and, of course, about 190,000 deaths how much this world has changed in six months. Now, we're going to be talking about COVID-19, but first I want to tell you that this is, of course, another program in the club's series, virtual series on the coronavirus in association with the Zetima Project. And I want to encourage you to please visit the club's website, commonwealthclub.org, to stay informed on COVID programs and other topics as well. The programs are free. This one is generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. And I encourage you to join them. You can go to our homepage and make a donation to support both this series and to sign up for our virtual fall gala. These contributions enable us to continue the club's 117 years of outstanding public affairs programming. Okay, back to COVID-19. After six months of what seems like all COVID all the time, I bet you think you've learned a lot about the disease and how to prevent it. So today we're going to test that knowledge in a unique interactive program. I will ask you some questions about COVID that really matter in terms of keeping yourself and others protected. And you'll have the opportunity to answer them, whether on your computer or tablet or phone. Then our expert guest will discuss the best answer to each question. And the good news is there's no pressure here. Participation is optional, uh, though it should be fun. And you can't fail. The responses are all anonymous. So only you know if you've gotten an answer right. Okay, we're gonna put your uh, instructions up on the screen for a moment. They're also in the YouTube program description, and we're going to put them in the chat from time to time as well. It should be pretty simple. Uh, you can use either a browser or a texting program to do it, and start logging on as you see these instructions as I introduce our guest. Brought back by popular demand, Dr. John Schwartzberg was on the program that I hosted six months ago to the day. If you think you've learned a lot about COVID-19 since then, I bet he's learned even more. Dr. Schwartzberg is clinical professor emeritus in the UC Berkeley UCSF's Joint Medical Programs Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology Division, and he's also the chair of the editorial boards for both the UC Berkeley Wellness Letter and the Health After 50 Newsletter. Just a couple other comments on today's unique program. First, we wrote the questions really as teaching tools and the answers as well. We're not trying to generate data that we could use to, for some uh, scientific publication but I think you'll find them interesting and provocative. And also uh, we will of course invite you to submit questions for Dr. Schwartzberg. However, we won't have quite as much time as we usually do because of the many questions that we're asking you. And by the way, for the final question we will ask you today as a poll, we're gonna ask you how well you liked this unusual format. 
So let's jump right in. These questions will all be multiple choice with one exception. That's the very first item. For this one, I'd like you to type in just one or two words. Write in one or two words that come to mind when you hear prevent COVID-19. Uh, this is basically just a question of, uh, um, I guess we call it word association. When you think prevent COVID-19, what first comes to mind? And I'll give you just a moment to fill out uh, some of your thoughts. This will create what we call a word cloud. You'll see things popping up. And uh, depending on how many people use any given phrase or word, the word will, be, will show up as larger. This will be the only time we'll do this today, but I thought this would be a great way to get us all started. And John, I'm going to be interested in whether you are surprised by any of this. Uh, usually you get things that you expect and a few things you don't as well. But interesting what people think about when they talk about or hear about preventing COVID-19. So what do you think, John? It looks like masks and wearing masks are some of the, the biggest ones. Uh, of course, and we've got other things like uh, distancing. Well, I, I, I'm impressed. I think that um, I go along with what everybody else is saying. I would put masks and social distancing right at the top, and that looks like what most people are doing. Everything else that's listed there is also important, but if you had to prioritize them, um, wearing a mask, social distancing. Uh, you know, you're not going to get COVID if you, unless you get exposed to people when you don't have a mask on, usually, um, or if you're too close to them, usually. So doing those things really does work. Great. Okay, we're going to make the questions a little harder. So go forward, I'm going to put up the next question next. And uh, that is, and this time it's a multiple choice question where you actually can choose more than one. If you're on your browser, you can just click them uh, as, uh, up to three. And if you're uh, texting, you, I think, have to do three consecutive screens for it. But in any case, here it is. What are the three, what are the, I'm sorry, what are the most important things that an individual can do to avoid contracting COVID-19? And uh, you may want, think it should be something of like getting more sleep or eating healthy foods. Uh, vitamin D has been talked about a lot, although we don't have that as one of the items. But also we've talked about social distancing, talked about masks, particularly within six feet of others, uh, avoiding large indoor gatherings, quarantining if you're exposed to someone who is diagnosed with COVID-19. Uh, I promise that more than one of these is, uh, isn't particularly important, but which three would you pick overall? Uh, John, there's probably others we could have put up here as well. We tried to... to um, say the major ones. And obviously we're talking about things you can do today. We could put up, get a vaccine, but uh, you can't do that today. At least uh, not any vaccine that I've heard of. I think so, maybe some of the people in Russia think otherwise. We've heard that announcement, but uh, clearly we want to keep ourselves healthy and then the specific actions that we can take. So I'll be curious to see what people think are the most important items. And it looks like we've got uh, several winners um, practicing social distancing coming up near the top. Uh, wearing a mask, of course, within six feet of others. We've already talked a bit about that. The avoiding the indoor gatherings, very important. Quarantining, interesting. A number of people picked that as well. Quarantining is important. But let me have you comment, John, on these responses. What do you think? Sure. Well, I go along with the group. Um, social distancing, we talked about. Masks, we talked about. It's important to emphasize the indoor gatherings. Uh, indoors is much worse than outdoors. Um, and it's purely because outdoors, the virus gets diluted in such an enormous volume of air, as opposed to indoors where the virus doesn't get diluted. And depending upon how much air is circulating indoors, determines how far that virus can go indoors 
and perhaps could even go further than six feet, depending upon if you have good circulation, poor circulation. So I would put those three at the top. You know, just as, an outs as another sort of tangential observation, Mark, it's, it's apparent that all our listeners really get it in terms of what's important, how to prevent getting infected. And then you look at places like Lake of the Ozarks on uh, Memorial Day, um, the gatherings up in Sturgis, South Dakota, uh, and uh, some of these rallies that the presidents hold. And you think, why are people doing that if everybody really knows? There was a, a mathematician who published a paper about a, a month ago that was intriguing. He said that um, each person on average knows about 600 people in the United States. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was his assumption. Given that, we'd need to have about 500,000 deaths in the United States before, on average, every person would know somebody who died of COVID. And I think right there lies part of the problem is that for a lot of people, they haven't seen the tragedies that COVID causes, both in, serious, in terms of serious morbidity and mortality. Um, and especially since a lot of the morbidity and mortality with COVID occurs in marginalized groups in our society. So I think until Americans start to see these, their friends, the people they know who are dying, even though they intellectually understand, they hopefully then they would start to, um, yeah, they before that, they would start to uh, respond more appropriately. They haven't experienced it. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, to be fair, uh, uh, answer F, the quarantining was a little bit of a trick question, right? It was. It, it's a great answer. Yeah. Um, certainly superb. I was focusing my answers more on the um, what you could do individually to prevent getting exposed in the first place. But clearly, quarantine, if you're, if you're exposed to someone, is the right answer. Yeah. Uh, eating healthy foods and getting sufficient sleep, those things are important, of course, for all disease. Yeah, but they're not going to help you quite as directly as some of these other things. Yeah. Let's, let's go to the next question, similar one, and that is the primary way that COVID-19 is transmitted between people is by, and if we have to pick one, is it infected surfaces, shaking hands or hugging, breathing infected air indoors, breathing infected air outdoors, something else, or, and you'll see this answer in several of our questions, uh, we don't have sufficient data to know. So let's see what people think about this one. I will say that, John, my understanding is we've got all kinds of scientific models for these things, which keep getting better. However, it seems like much of the best information we have about this, the real evidence, comes from contact tracing. I think that's, is that correct? Where we see what people say when they know, we know they have caught it from somebody else. Right, the real world. Yeah, which is, which, is, which is the best way. And that's why we, I think, have some good data on some of these and, and less on others. And sometimes it's just the absence of data that makes us infer certain things. Uh, but overall, we're looking at uh, when someone is infected and we contact that person and contact their, their contacts and we see who has caught it and we say, well, how did you interact with that person? Did you touch them or shake hands or were you? And of course, sometimes they don't even know the other person, but they were in the same area. Uh, sometimes they actually have hugged or kissed or touched or danced with or wrestled with or whatever it might be. So we'll see what uh, how people vote on this one and what we see. Breathing infected air indoors, by far the one most commonly selected. What do you think about that answer, John? I think it's what I would have selected too. I know it's what I would have selected too. You know, it's not that uh, infected surfaces or shaking hands aren't important. 
Um, we just don't have as much science to support that in terms of being the most important way of transmission. Nevertheless, it's very difficult to prove a negative. So clearly I and everybody else in public health and medicine would urge people to keep their hands clean, um, try not to touch anything that might be infected. And if you do soap and water, and if you don't have that, then uh, alcohol 60% or more on your hands. Um, we talked before about breathing outdoor air. It's a risk, but not nearly the risk of indoors, which everybody, almost everybody put. Um, the fact is that number F is, is a perfectly reasonable answer in many respects. Because as you were saying earlier, Mark, you know, the, we don't have a tremendous, tremendous amount of science here. We have some. Um, and the contact tracers have been very helpful in telling us that indoor breathing air is the most risky. But there's a lot more to be learned. Uh, for example, when we talk or yell or scream, we not only create droplets that go within about six feet, but we also create droplets that are lighter than air and can stay in the air for a long time. That's called airborne spread. And there have been documented cases of people getting it through airborne spread considerable distances away. It just is not nearly as common as closer in. So yes, I would have picked number C. Okay, good. Uh, and the good news is, even though, again, like you say, it's hard to prove a negative, my understanding is we don't have evidence of many people catching uh, COVID from mail or packages, from food being delivered or groceries being delivered. That might happen, but we don't see, we don't really see that in the data. So we're optimistic that that's not a big problem. Is that correct? I th that's correct, but I'm certainly not anywhere near the point of saying that hand washing or alcohol in your hands isn't important. Right, right. Very good. Okay, let's go to the next question. Which of these factors does not usually have much impact on whether COVID-19 spreads? Uh, so uh, by implication, uh, all of these except one does cause COVID-19 to spread or is a factor, I should say. The length of exposure to an infected person, how close you are, the physical proximity, uh, whether you've been exposed to somebody indoors, uh, the body temperature of the infected person, and what they call forced expiration, meaning singing, shouting, yelling by the infected person. Four of these actually are important, and one of these is not. So pick the one that you think is not important. Um, there may be many others as well, but uh, the uh, four of these have kind of been fingered and determined to be the things that most often have the biggest impact. And this is important because, of course, if we're trying to avoid certain things, um, uh, we want to use this as a, as a template for it overall. So let's see what our group thinks about uh, what's most important. I know I've read a lot about many of these different things and seen examples of them, and it looks like uh, we've got two things that people think are most important, John. Which do you think is, mo is, is the one that is least likely to have an impact on whether COVID-19 spreads? Well, Mark, that's, I think you put in there sort of a tricky question there. Um, but I, I, I would definitely pick number D. Um, the reason why I thought it was a little tricky is because I think what you're getting at there is that um, asymptomatic spread of this virus is terribly important in terms of infecting a lot of people. Uh, what I mean by that is that at least 50% of the people who catch COVID from somebody else, catch SARS-CoV-2, the virus, um, catch it from somebody who's asymptomatic or what we call pre-symptomatic. That is, they don't have symptoms, but ultimately will get sick. So looking for body temperature 
would only capture those people who are symptomatic. Um, and we don't want to emphasize that because that's at least only half of the population. So, and furthermore, of course, there are lots of reasons why people would have an elevated body temperature besides COVID. So yes, I wouldn't be, want to be around somebody with an elevated body temperature, but I really don't want to be around anybody because I can't tell if they're infected or not. Right, that's, right. That's right. the key point there. Right. Um, the forced expiration is really worth dilating on just for a moment. Um, there have been some very important outbreaks associated with people singing, playing musical instruments, um, where are shouting or screaming um, that have clearly spread this virus. So just my talking right now is expelling, if I was infected, would be expelling virus. But if I was yelling at you or screaming at you um, or singing next to you, that would be expelling a lot more viral particles. There's a lot, yes. And I know with the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah starting tonight, uh, there's some concerns about people blowing the shofar, the ram's horn, very important part of the ceremony that can expel the virus as right. well. So there's been some uh, plans made for that. Okay, the questions are going to start getting harder. I just want to warn you. The next one is, which of these is not a common symptom of COVID-19? There are many symptoms of COVID-19. Uh, we've picked six, and then we've got uh, a, a decoy in here, one that's not a common symptom. So do you think the one that's not common for COVID-19 is fever or chills, cough, sneezing, breathing difficulties, whether shortness of breath or something else, uh, a loss of taste or smell that you haven't had before, headache or diarrhea? Uh, lots of different symptoms. In fact, one of the problems with COVID-19 is that it has so many different symptoms that people present with, and not all of them usually, it's just some of them. And it's taken us a while to figure out whether something truly is a symptom of COVID-19. And of course, some of these symptoms obviously are similar to other health problems that are not COVID-19, in particular, the flu. We're going to talk about the flu a little later. But uh, one of the challenges is how do you recognize if you or someone else might have uh, COVID-19? Remembering also that, as you pointed out, so many people are, are not symptomatic at all. So... The top vote getters here, John, for the one that's not a symptom are sneezing, followed by diarrhea, headache, or the loss of taste or smell. Which is the correct answer here? Um, I would have put number C first, clearly. And it's not, be, not that people with COVID won't be sneezing. They can be. But it turns out when you look at large case studies of people who developed symptomatic um, infection, sneezing is not a particularly common symptom that they have. And it's a very common symptom, for example, of uh, allergies or the common cold. So of all of those listed there, I agree that C would be the most likely. It's interesting to look at a few of these others, though. You know, when this, this virus started, we thought it was going to be just like influenza. Coronaviruses are just a respiratory virus. They would cause a picture very similar to influenza. And then by about late February, we started to see these reports of people who lost their smell, the ability to smell, uh, and sometimes the ability to taste as well. And that has turned out to be one of the most common presenting symptoms of people who have symptomatic infection with SARS-CoV-2. And that, that's been a, something we don't typically see with other respiratory viruses like influenza. Um, headache is, is uh, certainly seen with patients with COVID, 
Uh, and that's same thing associated with uh, fever and chills. When you have fever and chills, usually you have headaches because of a lot of these chemicals floating around in your body. And I, the last thing I want to come on, comment on here is the diarrhea. Um, the, the virus gets into our cells by these receptors on our cells called ACE2 receptors. I won't get into the weeds here too much, but we thought those ACE2 receptors were just located in the nose, the back of the throat, down, down the airways into the lungs. But now we know that those ACE2 receptors are, are found in the heart, the gastrointestinal tract, the kidneys, and many other places. And that means that COVID can present with gastrointestinal symptoms, particularly in children where diarrhea is not an uncommon presenting symptom. So um, I agree with our audience, sneezing, diarrhea, the, um, sneezing would be clearly yeah. number one. Yeah. Well, my takeaway from this is that uh, since we usually just assume that if someone's got a, a virus, a, a respiratory virus, they're gonna sneeze, that that's been a real scare around here. But the fact is, if you see somebody sneezing um, and you think COVID-19, that's less likely that's the case. On the other hand, there's very few diseases that cause to lose taste or smell. So I think they're finding that to be fairly specific for COVID-19. Yeah, but, it, but again, I, somebody sneezing, I, I wouldn't want to be around them anyway. Yeah, anyway, right, that's true. Okay, you know, we were worried about the death rate from COVID-19 and what that was going to turn out to be. So what has it turned out to be? On average, if someone contracts COVID-19, uh, how likely are they to die? What percentage of those die? Is it zero to uh, half a percent, half to one percent, one to two percent, two to four percent, four to six percent, six to ten percent, or more than ten percent? And of course, here we're just talking about the average. We're talking about you take all those COVID cases we've had that have resolved in one way or another, how many of those people have died? Uh, a very important rate, obviously, since death is about the worst thing that can happen from COVID-19. Um, and um, you know, as we started out, we weren't sure if the death rates we saw in China initially or elsewhere were going to be similar to the ones we saw here. We weren't sure if they were going to be similar to other uh, um, SARS, uh, uh, you know, sort of same family of diseases, uh, some of which have been, uh, and, and some other uh, major pandemics have had much higher infection rates, you know, in the, in the double digits, uh, well, the double digits. Um, so this is, this is something that the epidemiologists have, and public health people have been watching uh, very closely to figure out what we can learn about the uh, likelihood of dying. And I know that we've also had some changes in the death rates as, as time goes on. We'll talk about what some of those will be too. So curious to see if people have a sense of how likely are, are, are people to die on average. Okay, so we're getting one to 2% is the most common response with four to 6% second and two to 4% after that. John, how bad is it? How likely are we to die if we contract COVID? Well, this is the first time that I don't agree with the audience. <laughs> Um, I would put B, um, the number that the CDC quotes, this is for all, as you said, Mark, all ages, um, all different kinds of underlying health problems. The number is 0.67% um, here in the United States. But as you also said, it's a moving target. Um, earlier on, we were seeing numbers of 2 to 4%. Um, but most recently, actually in the last few months, the numbers have significantly dropped. A couple things to comment about about this. First of all, when you know you were talking earlier that we're approaching 200,000 deaths in the United States, which is just a, a tragedy, and a lot of this was unavoidable. But those deaths are underestimating the actual number of people who have died either directly or indirectly from COVID. 
um, repeated studies have shown that they probably underestimate by at least 10%. So we've had more than 200,000 people already die of this disease here just in the United States. Um, the other thing to point out is that um, to emphasize what you had said, Mark, about on average, because if we were saying on average, if you were 75 or older, the number would be, the answer would be G. The numbers are much higher. And if you're 85 or older, the numbers are probably close to 25 to 30%. So uh, a lot of it varies tremendously upon how old you are and also how healthy you are. And again, I wouldn't say that um, just because you're older, you're gonna be in those statistics. If you're older and very healthy, you're probably not. But overall, so about 0.67%. And you can contrast that with influenza that overall the number is about 0.1%. So we're roughly about six to seven times more likely to die from COVID than influenza. Yeah, and 0.67% times a large population like ours, if many people do catch the disease, turn into a lot of deaths. Now, of course, although, as I said, death is the worst thing that can happen with COVID, arguably, uh, it's not the only thing that can happen. So someone in the audience conveniently just asked a question that anticipates the one that we had pulled up anyway. And that is for those who have had COVID symptoms and then recover, the likelihood that they will have lingering health effects is, and here we are with one of those questions. You don't have to quantify this, but do you think it's very low, extremely low, low, moderate, high, very high? Do you think the main issue, uh, we just heard that death is uh, dependent a lot on age in terms of probability, but what about lingering symptoms? Is that depending on age or underlying health status? Or do we just not have the data to know yet? Uh, this is important because, of course, fortunately, as we've seen, almost everybody who gets COVID doesn't die from it, right? More than 99% survive it. However, that doesn't mean that they are unaffected, not only during the time they have the disease, because many of them go into the hospital, but even afterwards. Um, what about people who are, who've had bad symptoms? And of course, we know many people who get COVID don't even have symptoms. And we're curious as to whether any of them have um, lingering health effects. Now, of course, we can't really tell long-term because COVID hasn't been around long enough to know if, if any lingering health effects last more than, what, six or seven months. Um, but still, uh, since most people recover within weeks, uh, we do have some evidence, something we know about whether things, are, things last longer uh, than that. So let's see what you think. Do you think it's high, medium, low, or dependent on health status, or that we just don't have the data? John, the biggest vote is we don't have the data. And the second vote is moderate. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I think um, clearly we don't have the data to really have our feet planted in cement on this issue. But we do have some data. Um, and it's been very disturbing what we've seen. Um, it's preliminary, though. And therefore, I think that uh, C would be a very reasonable answer. Um, but you know, it's at least the preliminary data would suggest F is not a very reasonable answer. And let me explain what I'm getting at here. Uh, first of all, what we're seeing, um, there have been a couple of studies now that have looked at people 60 and 90 days out from their COVID infection. And one of the studies showed that 60% of the people at 60 days out were complaining of persistent fatigue. And close to 45% were complaining of brain fog, or just that their brains weren't as sharp, um, or they didn't feel they were as sharp. Um, 
there, then the list continues to go down. There are some people who continue to complain up to 90 days later. And we don't know much more than that because as you said, the virus hasn't been around that long, but up to 90 days later, they still can't smell well. They can't, their noses don't work as well for smelling and taste is, it can still be a problem. Now that a lot of people do get well from that, but that seems to be a persistent symptom. And then the, uh, the, I wanted to point out that a lot of these people who have persistent symptoms um, didn't have serious illness. They, they got sick and they weren't well, but they weren't in the hospital necessarily. Some of them were. They weren't in the ICU necessarily, although some of them were. But a lot of these people didn't even need to go in the hospital and yet their symptoms are persistent. So I think G is the correct answer. We just don't have enough data yet, but there's been some red flags now that are very disconcerting that this is not like influenza that you may feel punk for six or eight weeks after the acute illness, then you're fine. This could be, this could be leading us to a population that has chronic problems. One last thing to say, um, we know that um, people can have strokes, or blood clots to their lungs, they can get scarring in their lungs. These are gonna cause often permanent problems. So there are lots of things that um, we don't know about COVID and there's lots of things we worry about in terms of persistent problems for our population. And I think the main takeaway for me is that uh, although we might assume, gee, I've got a 99% of not dying if I get COVID. And in fact, it's probably even better if I'm younger. Um, that shouldn't be the only thing we think about. There's some possible, uh, really problematic long-term uh, results and implications for getting COVID, uh, even if I don't get very, even if I don't feel very sick at the time. So, yeah, yet another reason not to want to get it. Right? Yeah, I, I probably should add just one last thing, if I could. Um, there have been some disturbing reports about COVID causing damage to the heart, maybe up to even a couple months after the acute infection. Um, yeah. Very preliminary data, but there's there are a couple of studies now that have been published that show that this can happen, and we don't know what the long-term consequences of that are. Yeah. So when people say, "Well, I," you know, younger people say, "Well, I just hope I get it quickly and get it over with," that may be not something you want to wish for. Right. I prefer them not to get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably best. Okay. Well, speaking of young people, how about the youngest uh, children under ten? I want to see: Do children under ten actually spread these this disease to adults? And this has been a, a, a big issue increasingly um, uh, as we reopen schools in some places. I believe New York City recently uh, uh, was reopening its schools, delayed it again. Obviously, a lot of issues, not only for the children, but for the teachers. I'm going to put this, this uh, poll up here. Um, do, uh, do children under 10 spread this? And of course, the challenge is that here in America, uh, children don't live by themselves. So even if they don't get sick from the disease, and uh, we know they don't die from the disease very often at all, the question is, um, do they become ill uh, at all? Or if not, do they spread the disease to adults? Uh, I think you've heard uh, and you've seen a number of different um, issues in some of the school systems where uh, teachers are either striking or refusing to come in. There's governmental uh, orders about this, so forth. So we're uh, taking a look at uh, what you think about whether children spreads these to adults. And the answer we have here from the audience is most likely sometimes. What do you think, John? Do we, what do we know about this? I think sometimes is a really good answer. But also, um, it is important to note that we don't have a lot of data about this. 
but we're accumulating more and more. Just in the last month, we've learned a lot. So I, I, I agree with uh, sometimes is the, probably the best answer here. The, it's a little tri tricky, your question though, Mark, because it, it's, it's clear that particularly children under five, it's very unusual for them to get very sick. It's typical for them not to get sick at all. And we found that children under five don't, it appears that they don't have as many of these ACE2 receptors for the virus to get inside of our cells. And that may be the explanation for that. Another thing we've learned is that children under the age of five are less likely than older children, teenagers and adults to spread the virus. Interestingly, in the most recent study I've seen that children over 10 or even over about eight or nine um, seem to have as much virus in, that are infected, seem to have as much virus in their secretions as teenagers and adults. And teenagers and adults have just pretty comparable amounts. So I think what all this tells us is that children can be a reservoir for this disease. They can bring it home to their parents. It's probably less likely that that's gonna happen with children under five, but just in the last two weeks, we've seen reports of children in daycare bringing it home to parents and one parent had to be hospitalized. And one of those reports was uh, in Marin County. Um, I believe it was Marin County or in the peninsula. Um, so we have to recognize that while children don't get sick as much as adults, they can. Um, and even if they're not sick, they can spread it to adults um, who can get much sicker. Uh, what about the age range uh, uh, a bit above that? Uh, the next question we have for polling is, adults aged 18 to 34 are unlikely to become seriously ill if they are infected. We already talked about they can have some sequela, but what about the actual likelihood? Uh, we know so many people are asymptomatic. To what degree are adults, young adults, likely to be or unlikely to be seriously ill if they're infected? So here we made this an easy question for you to answer, at least in terms of the structure of it. Strongly disagree, to strongly agree, or something in between. And if you think there's not enough data to really know, uh, you can uh, pick letter C. I think this is important because, of course, these are people who are at college. They're going to work for the most part. These are the people most likely to be out and about, if you will, rather than, I mean, certainly some can be working from home. Um, but also we know we are social creatures. Uh, uh, people 18 to 34 are most likely to be single social creatures who are running around and want to interact with other people. Uh, many people, when they get to older ages, are already living in households. They can have their pods and still have some kind of uh, social interaction. So a lot of concern and interest in this age group in particular. Uh, and, and I believe that in uh, the increases in COVID in the last number of uh, months, we've particularly seen this age group being held responsible, thought of as being particularly responsible. So we've got general agreement, 50% uh, saying uh, that adults aged 18 to 34 are unlikely to become seriously ill if they're infected, but certainly some disagreement, and a lot of neutrals too. What do you think, John? Yeah, I'm somewhere between B and D, like everybody else. Um, I think it depends upon what, how you, you interpret likely or unlikely. Um, it, it's clear as we've been discussing that this age group is much less likely to become seriously ill than the age group above that, particularly the, um, the much older age group. So there's no question about that. But I think one of the misconceptions that the population has is that 
people in that age group, 18 to 34, um, don't become, or really have a, a get out of jail free card. That is, they're not gonna become seriously ill, so they don't have to worry about it. And just ask the late, these two patients um, in the last three months who have had to have double lung transplants, one in their, uh, both in their, I believe both were in their 20s, one might've been in their early 30s. So it can happen, people in that age group die, people in that age group can get very sick, it's just much less likely. Okay. Here's a very different question, but I want to think that's got a lot of practical implications for everyone. Should I have a flu vaccine to help combat the COVID-19 pandemic? And we've got different answers for you, both yes and no, but the yeses are qualified. Should you get, should you get it right away? Should you wait till early October, a few weeks from now? Should you wait till later in the fall? Should you not worry about the timing, but get it definitely if you're in a high-risk group? Um, should you not get it because it's not going to help against COVID-19 anyway? Or do you have another thought about all this? I know that uh, we're always encouraged to get the flu vaccine. The question is, does it have any relevance at all to the pandemic? Uh, a very different issue, although they're both obviously respiratory infections. The question is, how much does that interact? Um, even whether the flu vaccine might be protective or in some other way helpful. So let's see what the audience says about this one. I know I've, I am a, uh, I, I keep getting um, um, notifications from my health plan to get my flu vaccine to it. So here's what we say. Yes, as soon as possible. Uh, early October is the uh, second most common one. And some people think also about the high-risk group in particular too. John, what do you think about this one? You had some insights when we talked about this earlier. Right. Uh, this one I feel really strongly about. Um, the most important thing is please get a flu shot. It's so important. Um, I would have picked B. Um, although A is absolutely fine. Um, let, me, let me give you a little background here. Why, do you want, why is it so important? Really, it's important every year to get the flu shot, but why is it so important this year to get it? Well, first of all, we talked about earlier that influenza and COVID, when they present, that is when they cause symptoms, I, I as a clinician could not distinguish between the two. So we'd have to do a diagnostic test to differentiate between the two. And we have medications to treat influenza. So I'd really want to know if my patient had influenza so I could get them on therapy. Um, the most important reason to get the flu shot this year is from a public health standpoint. That is, you have to be altruistic. We saw what happened in New York City during the height of the pandemic. We, we saw pictures of people on ventilators in the ER in the hallways. The mortality rate during the peak of the pandemic in New York City was much higher than what mortality rates here in San Francisco, not because the doctors were better in San Francisco than New York, but because New York was stretched to its limits in terms of its ability to care for really sick patients. And San Francisco was not. The reason why I'm giving you that background is every year influenza kills around 35,000 Americans, every year. That's just about the same number as Americans that are killed in car crashes. Every year, several hundred thousand Americans are hospitalized with influenza. So think about that. Here we are entering influenza season later in the fall and certainly in the winter. At the same time, COVID's gonna be circulating. These two together could 
exhaust our hospital capacity to care for people. And we could be in the situation that New York City was in during the height of the surge, or we could be even worse, like Northern Italy was in during its catastrophic month or so. Influenza vaccine will help prevent that. It's not anywhere near a perfect vaccine. It's gonna on average prevent about 50% of cases of influenza, which means that it's gonna prevent an enormous number of deaths and enormous number of hospitalizations, which means that those hospitals will now have the bed capacity to care for patients with COVID if it behaves as we expect it will be behaving. So it's a critical issue from a public health standpoint. One last thing, from an individual standpoint, there have been occasional cases reported during the late spring of a co-infection between influenza and COVID. And we believe that that would make the outcome for both of those diseases much worse. So get the vaccine to protect yourself from the flu, get your vaccine to prevent yourself from getting a co-infection and get the vaccine to make sure there are beds available if you or a loved one or anybody in our society gets very sick and needs a hospital bed and needs an ICU. Great, thank you. Ah, but I forgot to answer the question. Oh, yes. When? <laughs> I got carried away, sorry. <laughs> um, if I had to pick the optimal time, I would pick B, early October. Here's why. Um, and this is a really fine point. Any time is fine. Um, the vaccine, on average, tends to last about six months. We know that we start to see influenza cases late October, picking up in November, really picking up in December, peaking in January and February, significant still in early March, and then starting to drift off. So if you get it in October, you're going to be covered for the really the the bulk of the, actually almost all of the influenza season. If you got it in August, you might have a waning, some waning immunity by February or March. And so the optimal time, um, and this is more of a personal opinion than a scientific opinion, the optimal time would be probably in a couple of weeks. Um, but don't despair if you got it in September or even in late August, you're still gonna get excellent protection. Um, and certainly if it's in November or December and you haven't gotten it yet, it's still worthwhile getting. So be sure to get it. It takes about two weeks after you get the vaccine to be protected. So get it one way or another is the main thing. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about treatments because we have several different treatments that are being used. And one of the ones that's been most in the news is hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was initially uh, approved on, well, uh, authorized under emergency authorization through the FDA. Uh, later withdrawn. Uh, President Trump has been much a proponent of this. They've got some critics as well, but obviously the FDA did endorse this to, to a degree for a while as well. So is COVID-19, is, is hydroxychloroquine an effective treatment against COVID-19? What do we think right now? Are we giving you the, the opportunities to agree, disagree strongly? Maybe we don't have enough data. Certainly there's uh, been some controversy around it overall. And of course, this is just one treatment. Um, we've got things like uh, dexamethasone and, and, and um, remdesivir and some other ones, which tend to be more employed towards the most uh, seriously uh, ill patients. I think uh, hydroxychloroquine was more thought of as something that might be preventive or might be useful in people who aren't quite as sick initially as well. So let's see what people think about the state of the uh, knowledge for that. There's a lot of strong disagreement. And, uh, and also a number of people who think we don't really have quite enough data at this point. 
John, what do you think the data say? Yeah, I would, I would go with A. Um, you, you can never have enough data, so C is perfectly fine. Um, that said, the data that we have is very strongly shows that there's no clinical efficacy to taking hydroxychloroquine. Um, there are people who passionately claim that it works, uh, but that's based on passion. And, and for those who looked at the literature, I would say a misinterpretation of the literature. Um, it's also a good example of uh, why politics should not insinuate itself into medical decisions. Um, the fact that uh, the president of the United States was a strong supporter of this um, based upon absolutely no scientific knowledge or understanding, um, it created a great deal of um, confusion. The fact that the FDA buckled to his um, pleadings to uh, give it an EUA uh, said a lot about um, the politicization of our important agencies. Um, there's no good reason to use hydroxychloroquine. There is toxicity to this drug. It's not common, but it can, can, it can cause a variety of things, the most serious of which are serious heart rhythm disturbances. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, I no. strongly disagree. More downside than upside. Okay. Uh, let's, wanna, let's move on to a few lifestyle things. I have been a very frequent flyer in my life, but not lately. And how warranted is that? What's the risk of catching COVID-19 through air travel? And again, we're giving you choices here that are not quantitative, but is it very, very low or is it pretty low, moderate, high, very high? Or do we think we just don't have the data to tell us overall? I know that uh, for many of my friends uh, who travel incessantly, some of them have said I've never been grounded for more than a couple of weeks or a month at a time. And now they've not, you know, not even come near an airport since March. Uh, which is the case for, for me as well. So I'm curious as to what, people, what the data show, and I'm curious to what, what people think we know about the risk of catching COVID-19 through air travel. We know the airlines have been uh, seriously hurt uh, by this pandemic with lots of, with air travel way, way, way down, some substantial layoffs and so forth, and not being clear when that will come back and to what degree it will come back. So let's see what people think about the risk here. And we've got uh, a lot of different opinions here, um, but uh, moderate is the most common guess uh, or response overall. And some people think we don't have the data. John, what, what, what data do we have on this? Well, we don't have enough data. Um, and I'm, I have a little trouble in, I think, interpreting what low means to me. And I'm sure everybody struggles with low, moderate, or high in terms of relative risk. We should each of us define our own relative risk for things. Some have more risk tolerance than others. It's low, the risk is low from the perspective that you're far less likely to get COVID flying than you are likely to get it from that perspective. Um, so you have to ask the question, uh, how critical is the air travel? If it's for fun, for enjoyment, would you want to do something that puts you at risk for COVID um, for, for something that is more indulgent in that sense? Um, on the other hand, if you've got a loved one who you um, may be sick or may need your help uh, or uh, a situation like that, that would change 
how you would do the calculus. And you would a lot of people would certainly want to take a relatively low risk. It's it, a lot of it comes down to luck. Um, by that, I mean, if you have somebody in the row in front of you or behind you um, or the side of you who has COVID, you're at much greater risk. So it, it, that's what it comes down to. If you have somebody in the back of the plane and you're in the front of the plane, there's still, there have been one, there's one outbreak I know of that did occur many seats away or many rows away, but that would be much less usual. So the risk is not like, oh my God, I'm gonna get it if I fly. So you're unlikely to, but you're playing Russian roulette to an extent. One other thing that I'd emphasize is that when we talk about air travel, and I like the way you worded that, it's not just the airplane. It's how are you going to get to the airport? How are you going to navigate the airport for safety? Um, what are you going to do on the plane to assure the greatest degree of safety? Then when you get off the plane, you're in the airport again. And then when you get to the airport, when you're going to get to your distant destination. So there are lots of places in between your home and the place you're going that put you at risk. Yeah, my just by thinking about it, my biggest concern might be the jetway. If you have to stand and wait on the jetway, which is not particularly well ventilated and it's kind of crowded. And the, one other thing you should do is pick pick a flight where you won't be sitting on the tarmac a long time. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I wish we could do that. But the amount of air circulating in the airplane once it's in flight is uh, really very good. Uh, the circulation is excellent. It's not perfect, but it's excellent. But when the plane's on the tarmac, the amount of air circulating is far less. Well, if I can't fly, at least I'd like to go out to dinner. So let's have the next question about that. Uh, which of these does not make it safer to dine indoors? Good ventilation, reduced seating density, having all staff wear masks, ceiling fans to circulate the air, or dining only with your pod, meaning the people that you live with that you're regularly in contact with. You know, uh, we have seen uh, various states, regions, cities, uh, make dining um, accessible, make it only outdoors, allow indoor dining, but with restrictions, reverse some of those when cases uh, in their region started to increase. So we have a lot of different back and forths about whether you're allowed to, and if you're allowed to, what can make it safer? And I know that there's a lot of restaurants I've seen that are being trying to be very responsible and implement everything they can to make it safe for their diners to dine with them. Uh, not just obviously delivering or, or allowing curbside pickup, but actually dining indoors or outdoors. And of course, as the weather changes, as we go into fall, the outdoor dining will be less of an option in many parts of the country. So curious as about the, which of these uh, will make it, uh, doesn't make it safer. Several of these do. And the top vote here is, is ceiling fans. And the second one is dining only with your pod uh, so far. John, what do you think about that? Yeah, I would go with uh, D and I can certainly um, understand E. Um, but I've got to tell you that, and I hate to say this, um, I wouldn't go into a, a dining, uh, to a restaurant indoors. I just think you're a tremendous, not tremendous, but you're putting yourself at risk. Um, let me explain that. Um, when you're dining, you obviously can't have a mask on. I mean, you're supposed to take the mask off when you, when you eat or when you drink and then put it back on, but nobody does that. Um, you're in an enclosed area with people you don't know for a prolonged period of time. And if you're drinking alcohol, 
while you're having dinner, which a lot of people do, your inhibitions and your judgment decline and you're less likely to be careful. All of those things are a recipe for disaster. So I really hate to say this, and I know how hard restaurants are trying and how difficult this is for the people who work in the restaurants and the people who own them. But I think they're, I would not go into uh, indoor, I would not do indoor dining. Um, if you are going to do indoor dining, uh, D is I think the best answer here. Um, because ceiling fans are just gonna blow the, or move the air around and we saw in the large, a large outbreak um, in China early on in the pandemic, the way the air conditioner was blowing in the room blew the air from somebody who turned out to be infected over to a group of people quite a distance away. Um, and those people got infected. So ceiling fans aren't, aren't likely to help. Um, dining with your own pod would be great if your own pod is are all, the only people in the restaurant and your own pot is serving you and cooking for you and uh, delivering food to you. Um, that sounds like home though. Right. So that, that, that uh, D is, I think the best answer there, but I, I don't think you should be dining indoors. Yeah. Okay. And we'll distinguish between fans that just move air versus air filters, some of which might actually be helpful, but those are, those are different things entirely. All right. Um, how about groceries? We talked a little bit about this on contact. I should be concerned about catching COVID from groceries delivered to my house. To what degree do people agree with this? And this probably is similar to, not identical to, but similar to packages from UPS or FedEx or the post office or even mail. You know, what about, what's the likelihood of having somebody with COVID uh, not breathe at you or on you, but actually touch a surface uh, when it's a delivery sort of a situation where you could actually then touch that same surface presumably touch your mouth or your nose, your eyes or something like that and pick up COVID that way. I know this has been a concern, although I, I've seen the level of concern uh, um, change as the pandemic has gone on. And I'm not sure if that's scientifically based or just because uh, people are getting fatigued, but curious about uh, what you think about this, John, and let's see what the uh, audience has said about this at this point. At this point, we're looking at um, more disagreement, mostly disagreement about that. So people think that you should be concerned about catching COVID from grocery deliveries. What do you think? Well, let me just tell you that um, one of my colleagues at UC Berkeley, who I've taught with uh, for over 20 years, he thinks it's perfectly fine to not worry about it. And so he doesn't do anything. Um, I, I am a little bit concerned. I, I think the risk is, is quite low but I am a little bit concerned and I think it's reasonable to wipe things off. Um, I've got to tell you, I, um, uh, my wife feels very differently. She's very concerned about it and is meticulous about wiping everything off, particularly before she puts things in the cabinet and in the refrigerator. Um, and I certainly, uh, I always follow what she says. <laughs> so um, I, I think that, um, her argument, which I think really is, is a good argument, is that you don't know how many people have handled it. Um, and then you may very well have the virus on the product. It's so easy to wipe things off. Why not do that? And I mm -hmm. can't disagree with that. On the other hand, as we were talking about earlier, uh, we don't know how important it is if you touch something that has the virus on it, you now have it on your hands and you bring it to your mouth, nose or eye. How likely is that going to spread it? It's probably very unlikely, but we don't know with certainty. And it's so easy to wash your hands 
it's so easy to wipe things off. Why not do it? Yeah, yeah. That's more of a personal opinion than I can um, tell you about the strong science. Yeah, one of my experiences is one where the experts aren't, aren't of one mind. Let's ask one more in this vein. Uh, what proportion of people who contract COVID get infected from someone who has no symptoms? And this is probably a test to see if you were listening because actually Dr. Schwartzberg did uh, mention this number early in this program. So uh, whether you knew it before or listening, what percentage is it? Zero to 10%, 10 to 20%, 20 to 40%, 40 to 60%, 60 to 80%, 80 to 100%, or maybe we don't have the data on this one either. Although I gave you a hint that we do have some data on that. It's obviously extremely important since um, there, the other diseases I mentioned, some of the other uh, SARS family diseases have much higher death rates, but they are more typical in their presentation, meaning people are not infectious until they have symptoms so that everybody knows, they know and others know that they are like they're dangerous and should stay away from them. This is the opposite. Not as many people die on a percentage basis, but of course we uh, don't know if people are, are sick very often. So the uh, number one answer here is 40 to 60%. John, how, is that correct? That's uh, what the data shows. Great, they were listening. Yeah, sure. Well, or they were well informed before. True, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's um, this is most one of the more insidious things about this virus, and has really given it an advantage to be able to spread in the human population. Um, unlike SARS-CoV-1, the one that caused the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003, um, people were only asymptomatic for about a day. Here, you're asymptomatic for at least two days before you become sick. And a lot of people, maybe 50%, may be asymptomatic the entire course of their infection. That is, they never get symptoms, but you can spread it. So when you see people walking around without a mask on, they feel fine and they think, well, I can't spread it. That's, that's why this virus is spreading so easily. Yeah, it's insidious. Okay, we've got time for one more question like this and a quick answer from you. And uh, this is one that I think I brought up to you because I didn't know the answer. Will a COVID test detect the disease in the first three days after a person is infected? I know we don't have symptoms in the first couple of days, but what if you get the test? Will it, will it show if, it's, if, if I have it or not? And we've got a range of answers from no to yes with probably, sometimes, usually. And uh, also, maybe it depends on the type of test. We're having more and more diagnostic tests out there. Uh, and some of them are saliva-based versus nasal swabs, and some of them are rapid and some are not, so forth. So we're having more options and more supply, fortunately. But in any case, are we able to know if we have COVID in the first couple of days after we've been infected? The, uh, great if we did. So I'm curious to see your answer to this one, huh? And everybody else's answer. And, and the number one answer, a lot of people think it's depending on the type of test, and most others think it's probably not. What do you think? The, um, the most common test done is to detect RNA and the chances of finding it in the first day is really low, the second day low, the third day moderately low. Um, when you get out to the sixth day, even the fifth day, the even sometimes the fourth day, the numbers start to get much better. So early on, we don't find the virus very well. Um, after you're in several days into being infected, even without symptoms, we start to find it. The peak time to find it is about day six or seven or eight. Right. Well, it's too bad we can't know for sure earlier on, but uh, that's those are the facts right now. 
I appreciate that. Um, we have just time really for one last question, and I already told you what it's going to be. The good news is uh, this is a very smart group, and if we had had prizes, a lot of people would have run prizes for a lot of uh, accurate uh, answers. This one you can't get wrong because it's just your opinion. And if we could have our, our tech people skip to the last question on the list, this is really just a question about for this type of a session where we're focusing on information about an issue, um, do you like this kind of format, a quiz-based format. Uh, the initial format I had six months ago with Dr. Schwartzberg was just where I interviewed him about this. So, well, go one back, one back, and it's this one. For this type of information-oriented session, I prefer this format, a poll-based format, to a more typical presentation or interview. No right answer here. It's just what you prefer. So we're curious about whether you would like the club to do more of this kind of program when we're dealing with issues of uh, knowledge and information about a particular issue. It doesn't have to be health-related, but in this era of all virtual programming for the club, we're trying to figure out what the audience is going to enjoy the most. So very much appreciate you giving us your input on all of that. And we'll see what people say as uh, we tally the votes. And while you're doing that, I want to remind you to regularly visit the Commonwealth Club at commonwealthclub.org. We have done a, I, I want to commend the club for doing a, an excellent job and continuing to prov provide terrific programming, even though we can't do it in person. We have found it's wonderful. We're getting actually more and more people viewing than we can fit in our beautiful building uh, through this virtual approach and people from all over the country and all over the world. So we've been able to keep up the level of programming. Let's see what people say in terms of their uh, uh, results. It looks like there was a lot of uh, agreement and enjoyment of this uh, uh, format. So we will try to do more of it. Really appreciate everybody's participation. And in particular, I want to give a big thanks to Dr. John Schwartzberg for joining us virtually for today's program of the Commonwealth Club. And again, a thanks to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and to our other donors. If you enjoyed this program, I encourage you to make a donation yourself. So thanks again, John. I'm Mark Zitter of the Zetima Project, and now this virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.